And we're in Psalm 34, and it's on page 561 uh, in the Church Bibles. We're going to read all of the psalm, and it's a psalm of David when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. And the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him, will be condemned. The reading can be found on page 1204, and it's Hebrews chapter 4, chapter 6, verses 4 to 12. So it's page 1204. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things, in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end, so that what you hope for may be fully realised. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those 
who through faith and patient inherit what has been promised. Let's keep Hebrews 6 open and uh, pray with those words uh, before us. We pray for that amazing gift, Heavenly Father, that you give us a, a maturity that longs for solid food and is willing to get beyond the sort of ABC of spiritual nappyhood. Um, we pray you'd help us to grow up in our salvation as we turn to your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. I was wondering as I prepared, I wonder if you have ever considered, if it's occurred to you that coming to church week by week is a dangerous activity. Um, This time last week I was watching the sunset on the top of a mountain in Tennessee, in a place where the the paragliders launched themselves off, uh, off the top of a vertical drop virtually. And on the takeoff strip there, there were plenty of warnings posted for those that were doing the the paragliding or the the viewing about how dangerous the place was, um, which is entirely appropriate for a risky activity. But did you realize that coming to church week by week is potentially more dangerous than an extreme sport like paragliding. We don't much enjoy reading warnings, I know, but we still expect the government and others to issue them for our safety. Think first. Most doctors don't smoke. Um, Do not drive or operate heavy machinery after taking this medicine. Actually, we're thankful for those warnings, aren't we? Well, I wonder if you've ever picked up the warning note that occasionally is sounded in the Bible that hearing the Bible's message puts us in a dangerous place. Because if I hear the momentous news about Jesus Christ, but in the end I walk away from it unchanged, I am actually worse off than I would have been beforehand. I mean, obviously, if I respond to the message of Jesus Christ, if I say, yes, Jesus, I admit that I've lived without you, I believe that you died for my sin and rose again to prove it, and I come to you, and therefore I start a relationship with him, if I do that, and then over the years I keep going in that relationship, and I keep growing in that relationship, well then, great, the blessings are fantastic, out of this world even. But if I drift and doze and go cold, if it becomes clear that actually my attachment wasn't very real at all, and over the years I walk away from the most wonderful saviour I could possibly have, I am worse off by far than if I'd never had the experience of being in the Christian church. How could I ever do that? How could we do it? I am more culpable than the tribal pagan in deepest, darkest Sydney or deepest, darkest San Francisco or deepest, darkest Shelford than the tribal pagan in those places who has never heard a clear description of the Christian faith. And those 
tribal pagans surely exist. So, it is a dangerous thing to be in church tonight. Have I got your attention? Dangerous to be in church tonight, as it was for the Hebrew Christians to be receiving this letter of Hebrews the very first time, hearing God's voice through that channel of communication. Once in a while, you get something in the post, and you're thinking, do I really want to open this? Um, Maybe some of you here have had that experience over the summer months. There's a big deal letter that's come through the door. Most of the time, it's junk mail, and you file it under W for waste paper. But you don't do that to Hebrews. This is a, a love letter from God, a love letter from the Almighty God, we should say. No one would be the same after reading this letter the first time they got it, or indeed afterwards. Either they'd be further away from Jesus Christ or they'd be closer to him. So it's a big deal. And our little chunk of the letter we got today in chapter 6 catches that tension. It starts with warning and it ends with encouragement. Now the warning is one of a number of warnings in the letter and along with a similar one later on in chapter 10 is amongst one of the most sobering bits in the Bible actually. Um, Starts in verses 4 to 6. Let me read those again. The writer says, It's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who've fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. See, Christopher Catherwood here, his grandfather was a a well-known preacher. He said that in the 35 years of preaching, when he wrote this quote down, that he had done, no passage of the Bible had caused more pastoral concern to people that he spoke to. I wonder if you can grasp what causes people agonies with those verses. Well, the puzzle is that often... The Bible emphasizes that once we put our trust in Jesus Christ, we are absolutely secure. We've sung it half a dozen times already in the service, haven't we? So Jesus would promise, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hands. In fact, he added to that. That's John 10, verse 27 to 28. He added... God the Father had given them to Jesus in the first place, and he's greater than anyone in the universe. So they're in the Father's hands. Well, there are two hands holding on to the believer, God the Son and God the Father. That's you if you're trusting in Jesus Christ tonight. Not just one almighty divine hand, but two holding you in their grip. You're absolutely safe. That was one of the first lessons in discipleship which I was taught as a young Christian. I can have absolute assurance I will be forgiven and I will be kept not because I'm some sort of spiritual superhero but because God is an amazing saviour we can trust him also we're led to believe and then we think well what are we to make of this apparently contradictory warning that somebody who's been enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit can fall away and do so so badly that they never repent. 
They bring shame on the Saviour. It's almost as if he says they're banging in the nails of the crucifixion all over again. Sounds like they're Christians. And yet he goes on to say that apparently they're like lamb that should be fruitful but isn't, and which produces thorns and thistles and is good only for the bonfire. So we wonder which is true. The word of Jesus, which says his sheep are 100% safe. No one can snatch them out of his hand. Or the word of God in Hebrews 6, people who seem to be the real deal, who fall away so completely that they end up in hell. Which is true. And as you can imagine, people have argued the toss in both directions. Of course Jesus keeps his sheep safe. He died for them. The Father gave them to him even before that. They're safe. Yes, there's someone else. But what what about that person who was in TNG when they were 15, but then went on to reject the Christian faith and even argue against it when they were 50 and had their own children? No way God can turn a blind eye to that, surely. One of the big pastoral agonies which some folk pass through revolves around this precise issue because somebody thinks, oh no, this passage is describing me. Um, Maybe they've read a, a similar warning, the warning where Jesus says that if you sin against the Holy Spirit, you can't be forgiven. And they agonize, oh, have I done that? If so, how am I ever going to be forgiven? Well, that's probably for another sermon. But probably the best short answer on that question is the advice which says that if you are worried that you've committed the sin against the Holy Spirit, you almost certainly haven't. It's not to say that people don't commit that sin. Many do. But if you're worried about it, by definition, it almost means you haven't. Jesus was referring there to the Pharisees' sustained opposition to him in the face of all the evidence. Um, And that is not uncommon as a sin, so we should take the warning seriously. But he's not talking about somebody who falls into sin and is worried about the danger of that behavior. So if you're worried about having committed that sin, by definition, you most likely haven't. But let me ask the question again. Which of the two is true? Am I safe or am I at risk of falling away from Christ and falling under God's curse? Which is true? And the answer is that both are true. And both are absolutely necessary for us to hear. I'd argue that we probably shouldn't try to reconcile them as if God had got muddled. Uh, God is the perfect communicator, and if he says both things, then we need both things to be sounded. We need to hear both things. Sometimes what we need is the note of assurance that we could not be more safe than we are in Jesus Christ. Maybe somebody here needs that encouragement tonight. He's got you. Often God wants to bring comfort to people who are worried and say, you've got a fantastic saviour. You are safe. At other times, God wants to worry those who are comfortable and drifting and to say to us, look out. Don't be like that land in verse 8 that gets the rain and in the end produces nothing. In other words, Perhaps you've been in the orbit of real Christianity. You've got a sense that the word of God is great. You've tasted some of the benefits of the kingdom. 
that time you went to camp, the amazing friendships in the University Christian Union. You've seen the difference it made in your parents' life. You knew it was real. But then, for the sake of sin or safety, you traded in the Jesus that you'd heard about. For what could it be? For a middle-class, comfortable, Christless churchianity. Or you said goodbye to Jesus in some other way. And, says Hebrews, that journey through life ends in one destination only. It ends in hell. So maybe at different times we will need both these messages. God comforting us when we're worried and God worrying us when we're much too comfortable. And there's a danger. Uh, this, this is the way we are. There's a danger that we'll hear the wrong message at the wrong time. And I would say for that reason, that's why we need friends to help us get that right. Don't only read the Bible on your own. We actually need each other to help each other. But which message is true? Well, both are. Of course that's right. If you ask the Bible the question, is it ever possible for a real Christian to fall away in this kind of way that Hebrews 6 is talking about? Hebrews has a one-word answer for us. Don't. Can a real Christian fall away? And Hebrews sort of asks, well, why would you want to know that? To see how far you can get away with playing that game? Don't. Don't do it. But that's different from saying yes or no, isn't it? Well, we've got to move on. But I wonder if you spotted, before we do that, the note of grace that is actually there in this warning just at the end. These verses I haven't read, 7 and 8. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it's farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Which isn't a bad text for Harvest Sunday, is it? Encouragement in the middle of the warning in verse 7. There is land that drinks in the rain and produces a useful crop. Uh, More about that in a moment. But equally, there is land that produces nothing good at all. And if that describes us, Hebrews is saying, watch out. The point of being here in church, drinking in the rain, is not just to grow in Bible knowledge or have fun with Christians. God wants us to be productive. He's after a harvest, so don't let's disappoint him. So that's the warning, but even in verse 8, there is mercy. Let's look at it again, verse 8, and see if you can spot the note of mercy there. It's that little phrase where the writer says that the land is in danger of being burned. In other words, we haven't got to that awful prospect yet. For the moment, the farmer is holding off. Land like that is in danger of being burned, but that point has not yet been reached. It's a bit like that parable that Jesus told about the fig tree, which wouldn't bear fruit year after year. But the farmer said, hold on, don't chop it down just yet. One more year. Then if there's no fruit, go ahead, chop it down and burn it. But... We have a patient God. There's still that note of grace, isn't there? And I don't want that cut-off point to be true for anybody here. I hope you don't want that to be true for me. In which case, let's take the warning seriously. 
But what about the encouragement? Because that's where our writer is desperate to be heading in verse 9. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. He wants to believe that these Hebrews are the real deal. And so having warned some of the people that will be hearing that, there's some of them amongst them, of the danger, he is keen to encourage others. And let me summarize his encouragement in two short phrases. For a start, God can't forget you. And that's really in verse 10. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you've shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. I think there's a tendency sometimes to think nobody notices the uh, hard work we're putting in. I know with my wife, Susu, that I'm far too slow to praise her for things that she has done. So, for example, clean shirts just appear on the chest of drawers um, for me. And then a couple of days later, without any great effort on my part, I'm very good at this, I've successfully placed them back in the laundry basket, decorated with spaghetti sauce and other things. And then, amazing, no time at all, they are crisp and clean and back on top of the chest of drawers. And it hardly ever occurs to me to wonder how miraculously they get from the laundry basket to the drawers. And she must be tempted, be perfectly reasonable, to ask herself sometimes, well, why did I bother? How about church activities? There was a time, I remember about 20 years ago, when I was off sick, and for quite a long period I had to take two months off. And everything in church went fantastically in my absence. They didn't need me there, they didn't even phone up for advice. I wasn't really missed at all. They were getting on fine without me. And so the question just pops into your head, Don't, doesn't anybody realize how indispensable I'm meant to be to church? Well, with God, it's quite clear. He does notice what we do. So you see what verse 10 says? God is not unjust. He'll not forget your work and the love you've shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. He will not forget your work. In fact, he cannot forget your work because to do so would be a denial of his character. See how the writer puts that? God is not unjust. He would be unjust if he didn't notice, but he does. I ought to own up that I, I didn't want to give this sermon away to anyone else. I sort of argued it over with Joshua. In fact, I didn't argue. I told him. Verse 10 is a verse I discovered uh, more than 30 years ago as a young Christian in a Christian book that I just pulled off the shelves to have a look at uh, yesterday. It's a a verse I've never forgotten. It's rescued me more than once in my Christian life. Because like most people, I crave affirmation and encouragement. And in fact, I need it more than I think I do. Um, Well, I don't need to worry. As long as God is God, he can't forget me. And secondly, it says, he won't disappoint me, which is in verses 11 and 12. And I suppose if I read them to you, you'll see at first sight, their phrase is an encouragement to us to do something. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We don't want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So he's saying, don't try and hide hide in the crowd. He says, 
each of us needs to be diligent. And don't rely on Christian service in the past and what you did then. We're to show this same diligence to the very end, he says. You can't stand still in the Christian life. I don't know if you have a bicycle in Cambridge. In town, you see those people on, on their bikes at the traffic lights trying desperately to balance while they wait for the lights to change. And it can't be done for long. Unless you move forward on a bike, you have got problems. And it's the same in the Christian life. Not to keep pressing forwards spells trouble. So I want to encourage you, even if you think that the particular phase of life you're in now makes things harder than it might have seemed in the past, to keep the forward momentum, keep pressing forwards. So that's an encouragement addressed to us. But the result is that as we persevere with diligence, we discover something about God. We will make our hope sure. What we expect by faith will be ours to experience by sight. What we hope for will become reality. God won't disappoint us. That word of, of hope in our language is often sort of emptied as significance, full of uncertainty for us. I hope Manchester United will make the top three this season, get back into Europe. It's, it's an uncertain thing, isn't it? But that's never how the Bible uses the word for hope. When God promises something, it isn't in doubt. And if we only persevere, says Hebrews, we'll find our hopes fulfilled. If God intended to go back on any of his promises, surely he'd pull back from the promise to send his son into the world to suffer that brutal death by crucifixion. But he didn't. And if you fulfill that promise, then there's no promise about the future that he won't also keep, is there? But we lose sight of that. Our time scales get muddled up. I mentioned earlier the time I was off work ill. I had a month in hospital the first uh, time that happened, and that seemed to go on forever. But what's a month in the scale of eternity? It's nothing. And we need to hang in there. And then every step along the way, we'll find we're one step closer to the glorious reality. God can't forget us, and God won't disappoint us. Well, it's time for me to wrap up. We've seen two different notes sounded in the passage we looked at tonight. Warning and encouragement. And I want to conclude by telling you about the three church services we went to while we were away on holiday. Two of the churches, um, three different churches, two of them were big and busy with fantastic biblical teaching. Uh, in the middle week, we went to a service which, which was much smaller with a weaker sermon I mean, lovely building, beautiful building. Um, a great Bible reader uh, reading from the scriptures. That was the highlight of the service for me. But apart from the blueberry pancakes afterwards, it was outwardly more disappointing as a church. Uh, not far off leaving Jesus behind and slipping into nominal cultural churchianity. So I was sort of musing over these three different services. And on reflection, it seemed to me, I think Hebrews addresses a similar challenge to all three congregations. 
just because two of the services were, were biblical, were full of Jesus Christ, were well attended, well planned, well executed, doesn't mean that the people in those two fellowships don't need the warning to hold on to Christ and to keep going. Hebrews is actually saying it's dangerous to go to a good church. People crucify the Son of God all over again in the evangelical flagships. We will, if we're not careful. So we need the warning and the encouragement as well. Like I often say um, in a wrap-up of a sermon that the call of God today to us is this, to give all that I know of myself to all that I know of Jesus Christ. Today, if I hear his voice, I'm not to harden my heart. I'm to give all that I know of myself to all that I know of Jesus Christ. And, of course, in five years' time or 50 years' time, it'll be the same. And maybe it'll look slightly different. I'll grow, hopefully, in my appreciation of how amazing Jesus is. I'll become more aware of... um, the different challenges in my discipleship. I had to have a a little recommitment to Christ yesterday morning at home in my quiet time, and I needed it today as well. Becoming a Christian, as I did, aged 16, feels different to following Christ when I'm getting ever closer to 60. But exactly the same call goes to me today as it did when I was 16. I'm to give all that I know of myself to all that I know of Jesus Christ. And you need to do so as well. We all do. Then we'll discover that even if we regularly let God down, I'm assuming we do, he will never let us down. He can't forget us. And he won't disappoint us. Let's pray, shall we, together. We thank you, Father, for your gracious voice. We thank you for this love letter from you. Sealed with the blood of your Son. And we pray that you'd help each of us to respond to you, uh, to trust you and to keep going. And help us to help each other in that as well, we pray. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.